Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. On this show, we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On this episode, we speak with Korsha Wilson, a food writer and host of the podcast, A Hungry Society. Just giving Black culinarians just the opportunity to shine and be recognized and talk about why they do what they do. I just want A Hungry Society to be like a database for that. I, you know, I've had like a friend crush on Korsha for a very, very long time. I don't know if this is the case for you, Justin, but I followed her work for years now, it seems. Yeah, I mean, she's one of those people that no matter what, even if you don't talk directly to her, if you're in food media, you've seen her content. When I first met her, I thought she was going to be a lot older, actually. I don't know if that's like okay to say, but (laughs) she just seemed so much wiser and established and more of a model for me at the time. And I thought, wait, she's my age? That's so weird. Yeah, it's definitely because she she writes with an authority. I I feel you on that, though, because I. For for years, I was like, I'm going to send her a note. I'm going to say something to her outside of just like liking and retweeting something she did. And uh, I always imagine having to be like, hello, Miss Wilson. I'm sorry. Sorry <laughs> to bother you. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. I just wanted to say. And I think it just, you know, part of that is just uh, reflected in the command that she has and, in, in, you know, what she covers, what she writes about, how she writes. It's just paying respect to the game. Yeah, she's a highly respected member of the food media community and the food writing community. You know, I think there was a piece that she wrote last year, which was a critic for all seasons on Eater about the the lack of black food critics out there. And, you know, as someone who is not one, I thought there was a really important perspective to think about. You know, she, she reasons out just why it would be really great because a black food critic would have a very different perspective. She talks about this one really prestigious power lunchy type of place in New York City and how you read that space very differently if you are a white man. And I will say this. She writes about a ton of things. But when she touches on like African culture, black culture, um, it really resonates with me. And it's there are always great pieces. So we're really excited to have Korsha talk with us today. And it was a really fun conversation just about food media in general, but also just about what she could be doing right now if she had all the money in the world. I think I really like her answer. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) This is like... I don't know. It feels like sitting on the couch with like two friends. <laughs> Something that none of us have done in a very long time. Right. I think I'm projecting because quarantine has been so rough. <laughs> yeah. What have you been doing? What have you been up to? Oh, um, trying to write. And by trying to write, I mean like doom scrolling, um, various news sites and Twitter. Um, and yeah, you know, just... Uh, Trying to keep my head above water, <laughs> above like the water isn't even like right. It's more like flames at this point. It's I, I love the fact that you mentioned doom scrolling because that is something that I'll do on a regular basis. Yep. Have you developed any kind of breaks, anything that shapes your day as a writer, like uh, that lets you know it's begun, it's ending, like anything that kind of gives you peace of mind? Oh, well, peace of mind is in... Uh, in short supply these days, but yeah. uh, something I do is I will turn off my phone and I'll just put it in like a drawer 
And like, I'll text my mom beforehand and be like, if you need to get in touch with me, text my husband or get me on email. But like, just putting the phone away has mm. helped me out so much because otherwise I'm just like, and it's the same thing where it's like, I feel bad. What would make me feel worse? <laughs> <laughs> Looking through social media right now. <laughs> exactly. But that's helped a lot. Yeah. No, it's hard for journalists too, though, because you have to, in a sense, right, at least that's how I feel, is that you have to be online all the time to pick up on all the big stories or see if there's something going viral that you can like launder and write about for yourself um, or if there are calls for pitches, things like that. It's so, I think it it exacerbates like bad habits. It certainly did for me, right? Where absolutely yeah, social media just, I got benefits from it, but also like a lot of really negative things from it too. Especially like just thinking about like, both of you, like having to stay in the loop and then also cover these stories, which are oftentimes like so intense to like talk to sources about. And like, it takes a toll on the journalists too, to like tell these stories. It's like, it, I wonder about a lot of journalists' mental health right now, because it's, I think it's a really big problem. Soleil and I were literally just talking to someone uh, the other day. As much as mental health should be a priority, like my family never really went to therapists and stuff. And so during this pandemic, I remember like waking up one night, like in the very beginning and like couldn't breathe. My chest was tight. Um, I was like losing sleep and all this other stuff. And I talked to my brother and he was like, hey, man, you know, bro, I think that's anxiety. And I was like, oh, shit, I never understood that. But, you know, before were you really aware of how you were mentally um, when it came to work or just existing in life? Or have you become more aware as like time has gone on? Like, how have you developed? as a person during all of this? Yeah, so I actually like, thank goodness, I started therapy in January of last year. Nice. So going into this, like, I've kind of become a bit more aware of, okay, my mental health is starting to slide. Mm -hmm. If I mm -hmm. want to eat Alfredo every night for dinner <laughs> and watch 90 Day Fiance for like a few <laughs> hours straight, <laughs> I know that like, okay, something's not right. And I need to like adjust some patterns. Going to therapy has been so helpful because it's given me like the tools to like take a step away from my work and like take a step away from my feelings too and just kind of look at them. Mm. Um, meditation also, the like Headspace app has really, the nighttime like noises, I really love. <laughs> like <laughs> there's been like a lot of little tweaks since I started therapy that like helped me get more space and clarity on why I do what I do and how I do it. And recently, too, I know that I've seen you go out and do interviews, like tons of them, right, about race and about food media and these broader things that could certainly, I think, shower down a lot of criticism and a lot of bad vibes. You know, you're putting yourself out on a limb to talk about these broader, like, social issues. Does the self-care stuff help kind of fuel that? Like, how do you how do you step away? And also, how do you keep saying yes to these things? Well, I say yes, because I want to tell these stories. Um, I've learned the hard way that you have to kind of divest your self worth from telling these stories and just see it as a job. Because when things go bad, <laughs> you're so you'll see your self worth as like non existent. And that's a problem. Like no job should ever make you feel that way. Um, but especially in light of like this recent sort of food media, I don't even like to use the term reckoning because I think that centers like white voices and all this. 
Um, but this like reestimation of just how racist food media is, um, it's really important that I practice some self-care, but then also when I'm talking to people, I let them know that it's o- we're only going to talk about as much as they're comfortable with. And I'm not, I'm very, very sensitive to, um, you know, when interviewees are very much trying to get something out of someone, especially when it's trauma related. And I know what that's like. So I, I always try to like set the ground with, okay, we're only going to go as far as you want. And I know that this is intense and I hope you take some time for yourself afterwards to recover. And if you need to talk to me more, we can do that. If you want to talk less, we can do that too. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that because I certainly do a lot of those things too. Um, a lot of those interviews and I, I say yes to things just because I, I don't know, I just want to do something and be useful, which is also like kind of an awful motivation, <laughs> right? Because you have to just accept from the beginning, like a priori that you are valid regardless of your usefulness, right? Like that's a very capitalist right. like illusion that you deserve to live according to your usefulness to society. That's silly. It's really like deeply ingrained in everybody that like if you're not productive, if you mm. are, are taking time for yourself, you're lazy or worthless or whatever. I like at the beginning of quarantine, all those like you should have a new skill by the time <laughs> this is over. Like it's a pandemic. Excuse me if I like want to lay on the couch or like take a nap. Like I took a lot of naps at the beginning of quarantine just because I didn't know what to do, you know, and that doesn't mean I'm worthless. It just means like I'm a human being (laughs) and that's okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of step back a little bit and think about, you know, the why of what of what you do. How do you make your writing and your podcasting and your work reflect the reality that you want to see? And like, what is that reality? I don't know if I had such a like clear idea of it in the beginning. It was more just following kind of what I wanted to see in the world, which was work that centered people and stories that I didn't see being covered, that I thought were like foundational to one, how hospitality works into like how this country works. Um, actually, like recently came up with like this sort of rubric for anything that I do. And it's like, it's on my whiteboard. I'm looking at it right now. Um, it has to be insightful, joyful, creative, multidimensional, and nuanced. And any opportunity that comes into my inbox has to go up against that criteria. Does it meet those check marks? If it does, I'll do it. If it doesn't, then I'll hand it off to somebody else. But I think specifically for Black foodways in this country, like treating them with that respect and, you know, with this curiosity instead of just like I find like a lot of writers approach black food ways with this idea that they already understand it and it's simple and it's not regional or specific. And so for me, it's about like rectifying that narrative and like adding a bit more nuance to it and showing that like as many black people as there are in this country, there are that many stories. And so there's like this never ending supply of things to talk about and things to understand and like different foods to talk about too. Mm -hmm. So how do you resist that, you know, monolithic, tendency that I think people tend to apply to, like you said, Black food ways, but also to you as a Black food writer? Yeah, it's, you know, I turn down a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, you know, if you're asking me to write about authentic Southern food, what it is and what it isn't, not me. If you're asking me to rank the best, like, islands for in the Caribbean for food, 
I'm not going to. Right. Right. Like one, like they're all different and specific, but also like, I'm not like Jamaicans will come to my house and I don't want, I don't want to be fighting the whole Caribbean. So like, you know, it, it requires me being very clear on sto- like which stories I'm telling, why I'm telling them, being really clear on the intention. And that helps guide like where I end up. And so to be clear, though, like you're turning down financial opportunities, right? Yeah. I'd rather be broke than morally bankrupt. I don't know. That sounds very like grand and, you know, like this like thesis. But like when I'm not very clear in my intention and I'm doing it for like a different reason, the work isn't as good and I'm not as invested in it. So it's really important for me to be at that point from the jump or else it's just not going to work. Yeah. So I'm curious then, like, what what is the writing that you want to do? You know, I think there's a lot of writing that we feel like we must do, right? Um, but what is your moonshot? Like, what is, if you had all the resources, all the esteem, all the, the, the privileges that we're all kind of yearning for to enable us to do what we want to do, what would you be doing? I love this. It's like, speak it into existence. Um, I really, like, starting A Hungry Society has really helped me clarify the kind of things I want to see. So, like, oh, in Oakland, Sheree Williams runs Cuisine Noir. And it's this wonderful, wonderful publication that centers Black food stories. And she's been doing it for 10 years. And the anniversary was in 2019. And I thought, oh, I don't, I'm not going to pitch that because somebody else is obviously going to cover that. Like, 10 years writing about Black foodways, like, obviously, like, that's, you know, I'm way too late to pitch that. And I never saw a piece all 2019. So I reached out to her and, you know, we did a Q&A for my site and she wrote an essay uh, that's going up um, about what it's been like to like focus exclusively on black stories and, you know, just stories like that, like just giving black culinarians and, you know, other culinarians too, um, just the opportunity to shine and be recognized and talk about why they do what they do. I just want a hungry society to be like a database for that. So when you Google these chefs, when you Google these people, you don't have to search too hard. You just, you come across them like in their full glory, telling their story, talking about why food matters to them. Mm. So it's almost like you want to expand hungry society into this multimedia, like keystone in the community. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) It's really scary though. I mean, it's it's just me right now, you know. <laughs> I'm just one person, <laughs> but yeah, that's the dream. How many years have you been doing this project again? Five, four or five. And a hungry society actually started as a t-shirt company. Really? It's oh, yeah, damn. yeah. Um, I actually paid show a us those shirts. <laughs> they were not good. Like <laughs> my mom bought one. That was it. Um, but like a portion of each sale went to CCAP that helps um, kids go to culinary arts college. And the design, uh, I thought it was so deep. It was like a hand <laughs> and like a spoon and some chopsticks and a knife. And I was like, yeah, that's everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it sold like nothing. So I pivoted and uh, started the website and then 
pitched the podcast to Heritage Radio and they took it and yeah. Okay. And it's been, yeah, a couple of years of the podcast. So you're like halfway to Sheree Williams's level. Yes. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because I mean, she has like a bunch of writers that she pays and that freelance for her. So I'm not there yet, but I'll get there. Very cool. And like, who would the audience be for that project? Like, how do you... How do you envision this being reflected into the community? Yeah, I mean, I imagine the audience will be people who love food, um, people who are interested in food stories beyond the trendy, like, neighborhood lists or, you know, this chef just opened up this spot and this is why you need 10 reasons why you need to go here. Um, You know, like actual meaningful, like, this is why this restaurant or this virtual bait shop or this person's story matters right now and also giving black culinarians the opportunity to tell it from their perspective too i really like that word culinarian i need to use that more i think it's so it's a fancy sounding word but it you know it doesn't it it frees you from talking about chef so much you know um it includes caterers and anyone who touches food in the course of their work whether high-end or otherwise but i think that's really i'm going to use that that's great Nice. You know, going back to uh, Kosha, what you just said about the idea of, um, you know, doing like the top 10 reasons why you should visit this <laughs> like restaurant, that kind of stuff. As a food writer, and especially for you as, as a black food writer, can you explain uh, the effort it takes, one, to be able to, to be able to make relationships with these chefs that have these places to give you this kind of like insider track to information and two, like what you might have to give of yourself, like your personality to make those relationships work. It's not. I mean, I feel like having worked in restaurants and gone to culinary school, like I can kind of speak the language a little bit. And mm-hmm. so when I'm talking to them about, you know, inspiration for like a certain dish or a plate of food or, you know, talking to them about my family being West Indian or uh, my dad's side of the family is from Virginia, you know, like it's, there's this like shared lingo, but it does take time to build up those relationships. And chefs in particular are, they're like moody artists <laughs> who are often like late and or forgetful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. like, hey, we were supposed to chat today at two. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh, right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes time to build those relationships, but I treat it like anything else. It's like, you know, building relationships with you two over the course of how many years now, you know, um, it's just, it's a relationship. It's a give and a take and it just, it takes time and it's worth it. I love that you're, you mentioned like the, the, the things you need to know about this bakery or whatever. And because I find myself stopping myself all the time now when I have the impulse to write you or we in food writing, um, I think before I I had questions about it, right? Like who the audience was, who I was talking to, and how do I frame things in a way that wasn't so, like you said before, like white-centered, right? How do we use words more carefully to ex- to express, or really to interpolate, right, to the audience that we're hoping for? Um, when you write, and if, if you have, if you ever use we or you, or like those sorts of direct pronouns, um, who's included in that? Who should be? 
Oh, um, when you said we, my initial reaction was, <laughs> is we canceled? I yeah, I think it, it, it should be. I think like, who is we, um, you know, I, I do, you know, a little bit of reporting, but mostly like essay writing. And so a lot of the time it's coming from my perspective as a black woman, as a black diner, um, as someone who used to work in restaurants, like it, so that's the perspective I'm always writing from. Um, and when I think about the audience, I think about like, if I were talking to my mom or if I were talking to my cousin, like, what would I say about this place? Like, what does it feel like? Um, is there something non-food related that I can use as a comparison that would work? And I think it takes like food writing out of this sort of basic sort of cliched food brings us together sort of thing that it's been stuck in for a long time. Um, if we think about it a bit differently. Yeah. Why doesn't food bring us together? If it could, then it would have done so by now. <laughs> like, <laughs> we've been eating food for a very long time. There is something to be said about the joy that comes from eating with other people. But if we're expecting food to, like, change someone's political views, we know that's not true. Um, there's plenty of people who are anti-immigration but eat. But are like, Taco Tuesday, it's great. You know, like, it. it that's not how it works. Um, food is always deeply political and deeply personal and it doesn't like soothe any of those things for everyone right yeah like does objectivity right the journalistic principle of the view from nowhere does it fit with food ever you know um your writing isn't especially objective because it is very mired in your specific subjectivity your particular point of view and to write about food from an objective stance, and I'm using air quotes here, it seems like that, that sentiment that you expressed that food brings us together is an expression of that too, right? Of an expression that isn't offensive, <laughs> appeals to everyone seemingly, but also no one. And it really takes food and food writing like out of its power, you know, um, out mm -hmm. of its any sort of meaningfulness that it could possibly achieve. Well, I think that's true of like the um, essay or like reported essay type format. But if you're talking like straight up uh, reported piece about like labor or um, I think there is a time and a place for subjectivity in food writing. Uh, but I think it's definitely when you're talking about uh, broader issues within food. If you're trying to talk about a particular dish or if you're talking about a particular dining experience, then I think you do need to very much root yourself in your personal experience and what you're bringing to the table when you approach that thing. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Justin Phillips, and we're back with Korsha Wilson, food writer and podcaster. So whenever it comes to food writing, I always... Whenever I think of like diversity in terms of coverage of who's writing, I also always go back to thinking of the people that are paying for that writing. So when it comes to like newspapers, um, I've definitely like even here have written my fair share of things that I may not have enjoyed writing, but they were just kind of like those servicey, you know, mm -hmm. look what just opened kind of pieces. And a lot of those, you know, at least like years ago were beneficial to our 
paid subscribers. Like they really enjoyed those kinds of things. At the end of the day, how much control does that group have over like the overall conversation around food and food media? Because at some point, you know, publications are going to cater to the people that are paying for things. Like I always, I wrestle with this idea that at the end of the day, it always comes back to that. Am I being pessimistic or what do you think about it? No, I don't think you're being pessimistic. I mean, those stories aren't fun and they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're like not why we, we write, mm-hmm. you know, like it's like it doesn't get at the deeper meaning of something or why it matters or why it matters in the landscape or to you personally. So like those things aren't fun. I do think it's like a an easy sort of like, you know, a list of the best cheeseburgers in New York will get clicks, right. you know? And so it's like, well, can that be done in tandem with like a deep dive into, I don't know, a, a an Ethiopian restaurant or a Pakistani restaurant that's really incredible that people need to know about and need to know about the story of uh, the owners. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like they're mm-hmm. maybe both of them can be done at the same time. You know, I, I feel you though, as a writer, I want it to lean heavily towards the deep dive on mm-hmm. the <laughs> particular person's story. But I do understand the like financial obligations of, those kind of listicles that are just easy to digest. And I feel like most people are probably Googling them on like the subway or something. Yeah, yeah. That's where all the clicks are coming from. (laughs) I mean, I don't know, Justin, you shouldn't feel too bad because like, you know, think about, this is a terrible example. Think about Nicolas Cage, right? And like he he did his national treasures so that he could do Vampire's Kiss and, and, you know, uh, The Color Out of Space and, um, you know, those movies that were completely bonkers and sort of artsy, you know. Um, You know, you you put in your time. Also, uh, this has nothing to do, sorry, Korsha, but this is like just (laughs) an aside. Um, Is Nicolas Cage a good actor? I kind of think think so. He can put it in when he wants to. He often doesn't want to. He's like a cat. I don't know any of those movies you just listed, <laughs> but I know the scene um, of that that movie where he has the bees on Wicker him. Man. And he's like, yes. And he's like overacting. He's like, the bees, they're in my eyes. <laughs> so I say, no, he's not a good actor, but that's my only reference. Sorry to like get sidetracked on, on Nick Cage stuff, but no, I think it's really important. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it, I think it, it's a good analogy to what we do, right? You write your listicles or your opening pieces, your closing pieces, or whatever, so you can write the features or whatever. Especially, I think when you you depend on the writing for your income, you just have to write yeah. that stuff. I think getting That's to the it. point that Korsh is at, and I think that we're at too, where you can say no to certain things. Um, it takes right. time. It takes a lot of work to build up that sort of network and esteem so you don't have to say yes to everything, you know? Yeah. Um, something that my husband told me early in my writing career when I was uh, very broke, um, <laughs> he said, you know, it's not selling out if you don't have anything to begin with. Like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's selling out like when you can make yeah. the decision and you know it doesn't align and you do it anyway just for the check that's one thing i wish an editor had told me when i was younger like when i first started is that the thing that's invaluable in this business is time you do your thing and you do it well over time you'll get to a point where 
you won't be complaining about the things that you're in terms of assignments and things. But yeah, time is invaluable in this business for sure. Absolutely. At the same time, it's like, do we need another burger listicle? Exactly. Yeah, we we don't. But, you know. Do we need another grilling issue in July? I don't know. I'm not going to lie to you, though. If, uh, if Corsha put out like a 10 best burgers in New York thing, I, I'd, I'd click on it. I mean, <laughs> I want to write one now, even though I don't live there. I think it'd be really funny. Just to like pick a bunch of arbitrary places. The McDonald's and Union Square. <laughs> <laughs> Applebee's and Times Square. I think it should that should be the title of it, but you click on it, it's a totally different story. It's like something it's about Nicolas Cage, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I like using SEO for evil. That's great. Yes. <laughs> so I had one final question for you, unless Justin, you have another question you'd like to ask Korsha. No, go for it. Okay. Go for it. So I'm taking this question from Roxanne Gay, who tends to ask this during literary book talks and stuff like that. Um, But I find it really interesting to ask of writers. Um, So what do you like best about your own writing? My jam is, is like, I zone out on scene setting, like making readers feel like they are literally standing in my body and experiencing something as I'm experiencing it. or feeling something or tasting something. Um, I really like descriptive words. Wow, that was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it was honest. I get that. That's cool. Yeah, that's my favorite part, I would say. Mm -hmm. Is the scene setting? You're very like Tolkien-esque in that way. Tolkien? Yeah, why not? He would spend pages writing about like a hill, you know, or like (laughs) stuff on a table. That's his thing. Well, that makes sense because he's also an INFP like me. That explains it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for entertaining all of our questions, Korsha. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I love you guys and I love this show. So it's really good to be here. We're going to have to do this again. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So if people want to find you and your work, where do they do that? Okay. So you can go to hungrysociety.com. You can go to KorshaWilson.com. Or you could go to at Hungry Society or at Corsha Wilson on Twitter and Instagram. Cool. Thank you. I know we just put Corsha in the hot seat, and I really appreciate her being game for that. So now I want to ask you, Justin. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about your writing? It depends. It depends on what I'm doing. If I get to do, uh, if I got to do like an essay or like a criticism of some sort or um, if it's a piece where I get to kind of like lean into it and something I'm skeptical about. I think my, I thoroughly enjoy reading my own skeptical pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Cause you're like, I'm so smart. These fools don't know anything. Then I go into the bathroom, look in the mirror and I kiss the mirror. I'm (laughs) losing it. Do you like make your guns from your like biceps Uh, and kiss them as well? Oh, obviously. I, I don't see how you could possibly go in the bathroom and not do that. What do, okay, well, let's let's turn this around. What about you? What do you like most about your own writing? So I admit there are times when I will read back what I've written and be like, ooh, that's good. <laughs> Mostly when I can find, you know, I struggle with writing. And when I can find a new way to say something tasted good, I get really psyched. There's something really fantastic about, like, getting in the groove when it comes to writing, like finally, like not being able to hit your stride on a subject, like when you're just trying to break it down and then all of a sudden being in the zone, it's a, it's a fun feeling. 
Yeah, it's it's a lot like baseball, right? Where a lot of it is just standing around, looking at Twitter, um, scratching your butt, <laughs> and then you get to hit the ball, and then the ball yeah. and the bat make contact, and you're just like, yes, that's the game, yeah, right? That's it. Well, I'm glad I know what you like about your own writing, and now every time I read a piece where you are just side eyeing the whole world, I'll be happy that you're happy. And whenever I read a piece that you've done and you've explained how something tastes or looks in a way that I wouldn't have expected, I will be very proud. Oh, Yeah, look at this. Well, okay, feels aside. <laughs> Let's move on. Put the feelings in a box. Put the box All under right. the bed. There you go. And now we're going to answer some questions from listeners. Let's do, I'll read the first one. Dear Spicy. So what's the deal with the Bosque cheesecake and why is everyone talking about it all of a sudden? How did this happen? Well, the cake itself has been a part of the food scene for many years. It was cooked out of, you know, this Basque cheesecake. It's kind of an overcooked um, torta de queso in mm -hmm. San Sebastian at this one restaurant called La Vina. And they've been doing it for a very long time and people have made many trips out there to try that cheesecake and they've loved it and has a really, um, a lot of people are fond of it around the world. And I think there are many, there are a few restaurants actually in New York City that make a version, for instance. And it didn't really hit the Bay Area though for a very long time. And it shows up sporadically on restaurant menus, but not really. It hasn't hit like the, the big time, but for some reason right now feels like the moment and a lot of it has to do with this one guy, Charles Chen, who I wrote about for the Chronicle, who started making the Basque cheesecake, or at least his own version of it at home, at his place mm. in Oakland. And he keeps selling out and people are just going completely bonkers over it. And then I wrote about it and then it just, <laughs> you know, the thing that happens when you write about a food, especially a good one, people just start going buck wild. So now I think it's it's been really interesting to see he makes maybe 40 cakes a week, and all of them get snapped up within minutes. Where does the pursuit of this come from? Like, well, why, why do people scramble to it? I think it's also human nature to want to do something that you see other people doing. Mm. So the fact of the matter is, when a cake is framed as it's gone viral, or it's a cult-followed cake, or you know, it's continually sold out, that adds to the allure. And I think that was a big part of it. And also the fact that he's baking out of his home oven, which can fit two cakes at a time, and he can make maybe a dozen cakes a day, right? And yeah, that preciousness, that scarcity adds so much to to the appeal. And also it's delicious, you know? Um, like, like I said before, I, I tried really hard to describe in detail why the cake was so good, and I think... I succeeded <laughs> and imparted upon people the reasons why they need to get this thing. And yeah, that's what's happening. Okay. I think that was the question. Um, I'll read the next one. Dear Spicy, what are some sanity-saving food projects that you can do at home? Kind of on the lines of making sourdough bread, but more off the beaten path. So I guess people are done with sourdough. Yeah, no no one's into sourdough. and They've moved on. I mean, we did a whole podcast on this. People can go back to uh, try to make some pickles at home. Yeah, you know, if you have some jars. I mean, you got some jars? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they already made their pickles and now they're just waiting for them to ferment. So 
they're just looking for the next thing. Oh, yeah, that is true. It is a waiting game at this point. So they could have done that. Maybe they just breezed past the pickle stage, then went on to sourdough. So after those two chapters, Soleil, what's next? <laughs> what else can people do? One thing I like to do that also you don't it doesn't take up a lot of room and you don't have to coddle it every day or any of that nonsense is make dumplings. So whatever kinds, Chinese dumplings, Korean dumplings, you can make pierogi, Polish dumplings, because Ooh. it's a it's a day project, you know, like tamales, right? It takes all day and you can freeze them and back them up and have them for later. And then every time you unfreeze them, you're reminded of that wonderful afternoon you spent folding things while watching TV. I love that. I, I'm going to move on to the next one. Wow, you don't do anything? You don't do any projects? <laughs> I don't really have anything to add. Most of the thing, I don't try to really undertake long-term food projects mm. um, at home. Like for the most part, I need something a little bit different each night. So what I've been doing is like calling family members, like people that I know. Like, for example, my brother has like a chicken fettuccine recipe that he makes for his kids all the time. Or, you know, my dad will have, you know, like a, like a soup recipe or something like that, I think, you know, or like a stew recipe. Things that I don't normally try from them, I will call people and, be, and ask them to tell me about it and then try to recreate it. And that's kind of fun. That's one, cute. One, it gets, it gets you to know people that you're close with that you may not, like, catch up with about food very often. And two, it kind of lets you test areas that you normally don't go into, so... I don't know. That's my thing. I'm not into the long-term project. I do like short-term things that kind of reconnect me with people. I love that. That's really cool. See, I didn't think it was worth adding, so I was just going to go to the next question. No, it's good. <laughs> love yourself. All right. All right. So the next one. Uh, Dear Spicy, Soleil, you wrote about vegan hood chefs in your Bayview Farm story and said they make plant-based Cajun Creole food. But what's left of Cajun Creole food without seafood, meat, and all that jazz? <laughs> I think there's a lot. You know, I, I do agree, though, that when what we think of as Cajun and Creole food is very meaty, seafoody. You think of crawfish. You think of alligator. <laughs> um, you think yeah. of, gosh, what else? There's so much else. Etouffee yeah. with the cream sauce and then crawfish monica. With like the cream and the bread at Jazz Fest, and and Dewey sausage, boudin. So yeah, okay. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, There's time. So this one pop up in the Bayview neighborhood of San Francisco, Vegan Hood Chefs does a plant based version. The two founders, I believe, their grandparents are both from Louisiana. So like they grew up with that kind of food. They make mac and cheese. They make greens. They make. Actually, yeah. really good crab cakes with hearts of palm, which is a very, um, I think, a very classic vegetarian swap for crab is hearts yeah. of palm. I really like their cooking. They season things really thoroughly and well, which is also very important. You know, it's, I think mm. the soul of that kind of cooking is in seasoning for the most part. Yes, I 100% agree with you. And the funny thing about vegan soul food or Creole food chefs is that they all kind of blend it together. Mm -hmm. Like they might have gumbos on their menu, but they'll also have like pulled pork sandwiches and stuff. But, you know, I can have like a pulled pork sandwich from a place that's made from jackfruit. And if it's like seasoned right, it'll taste great. You know, like if they swap out um, 
like mushroom stems for shrimp in a gumbo or something like that. If it's cooked low and slow, as they say, and seasoned well, like it's it's totally fine, you know. Yeah, you know, gumbo zerb, for instance, is mostly greens anyway. I mean, I think the only thing that's really tough, I just really, you brought up andouille sausage, and I just love the texture of that sausage. Mm. Uh, You know, it's just really, it it just fits so well. It's something that's like stuck in my mind, just how coarse it is, just how different it is from other sausages, like that smokiness. It's tough for me to try like vegan red beans and rice. Without, because that you know, because that original flavor stuck so much in my head, but um, you know, I'm down for anything else. You throw any other recipe that you want to attempt and pivot to vegan. I'm down. Well, that's all the questions we have for now, and that's also all we have for today's episode. You're free. Thank you for listening, <laughs> and thanks again to Korsha Wilson for being in conversation with us. You can read the transcript of our interview with Korsha at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos or little paper airplanes with notes in them or whatever you want about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.